0: Where we will get you over the hump with what you need to know on this January 31st, 2024. And this is where we say to January, bye bye. It hasn't been too bad. The wettest January on record, though. Mm -hmm. This has been pretty doggone sloppy. And even the snow that we've had has been very wet and heavy. We're going to get rid of a lot of it um, because we're going to see temps up in the uh, lower 40s this evening. And And the sun is
1: coming back, I understand, this weekend. Won't
0: that be nice? Make us all feel a little bit better for those that uh, suffer from seasonal affected disorder uh make you feel a little brighter out there a number of things that hopefully uh, we we don't see the fog this morning that was forecast the fog advisory uh is not in effect that we were expecting to be dealing with this morning and perhaps some fog will lift in terms of what the fed will be doing with interest rates in the future they're going to be meeting news conference at 2 30 this afternoon they're going to be making their announcement at two o'clock Nobody expects any interest rate cuts. Nobody expects any interest rate increases. What we're hoping for is perhaps a little bit of enlightenment on what may come later this year. So all eyes on Jerome Powell and those at the Federal Reserve. Also, we're going to get an insight into what the campaigns have been spending their money on. As the, both the former President Donald Trump and Nikki Haley will be disclosing their FEC reports, early indications are that it will show that former President Trump spent 53 million dollars campaign dollars on legal fees that's what it has cost him over 2023 to fight these uh, myriad of legal battles there's nothing illegal about it um and i think many of the donors know that they are going to donate to his legal defense fund Uh, but nikki haley is saying look folks every one of those dollars is a dollar that could be going to defeat democrats and it's not Um, so we'll see by the way she apparently uh, raised four million dollars very quickly after losing the New Hampshire primary uh, that the anti-Trump forces really coalescing behind her Mm -hmm. and it looks like she's gonna have more than enough money to get her through the South Carolina primary meantime um, I can't imagine what these families have been going through that were uh, victims of the
1: Oxford shooter as they listen to some such troubling testimony yeah uh, the uh, during the trial of Jennifer uh, Crumbly, uh, her former uh, boss, uh, Andrew Smith, provided some some crucial insights into their interactions on the day of the tragic accident. Incident, rather, uh, Smith, who supervised Crumbly at a real estate firm, talked about their phone calls and um, their in person conversations. She said that Crumbly texted him about a meeting with her son's counselor, attaching this disturbing image of violent drawings from her son's math worksheet. And later that morning, they crossed paths in the office, and she expressed concerns about her son's well-being. Then he says, as events unfolded, that he heard some commotion outside in the hallway and witnessed Crumley rushing out, reporting an active shooter at her son's school. And throughout the day, he says Crumley messaged him about missing guns and and prompting him to advise her to contact authorities. And and during this tense call, uh, while she was en route to the school, he said he heard sirens in the background and it just really made him know that something really serious was going on. Not only did he speak, but also uh, Nicholas Ejack, who is the former dean of students at Oxford High, he uh, testified about concerns regarding the shooter's mental health, and uh, he said he met with James and Jennifer on the morning of the shooting and expressed that he was surprised the teen was not removed from the school and also why his backpack was never searched. Now, we know the gun used in the shooting was in that backpack. When the defense asked Ejack about the shooter's response, to him holding the backpack he testified well he didn't really appear to care that I was holding his backpack at all and therefore he said
0: well I had no reasonable suspicion to search uh, that's the right. backpack he, he I mean he said well now if the parents had disclosed the uh, existence of a gun in the home well then that would have changed things well what about your, your yeah responsibility here you're the trained professional to do threat assessments you say you're disturbed by this young man's mental health you're concerned about self-harm and you don't ask the pressing question, Are there is the means of harm present in the home?
1: So what's the defense going to say? They're going to say, well, if you have been through the threat assessment and have gone through that, why do you expect for the parent who hasn't gone through that to know what's going well, on?
2: Well, the defense got him to say, so you didn't think he was a threat? And he said no.
1: Right.
0: Stunning. And how troubling for the parents to sit through that and to hear and 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 understand this man's not on trial no but he will be to some degree in as public. will the sc- the school district in civil cases yes and he will be asked that in a much less friendly manner it will be more of how could you not mm-hmm, see mm-hmm. this a little bit more hostile <laughs> yeah um but I, I again i can't imagine for those families uh, to hear the instances the, the that missed all opportunities. of
2: the right the missed opportunities And yeah. so we'll talk to Sean Lay at 649 from local 4 cuz he's you know, on point. Listening to this in a courtroom yeah. with
0: those mothers and fathers. Right. Uh, meantime, uh, the off season for the Detroit Lions could it have turned out any better so no. far? No,
2: no. Wow. This is like the biggest free agent they could get. And Christmas that's ben in January, Johnson wanting to run it back after interviewing with five different NFL teams and the Washington Commanders, sort of en route in the air, coming to meet him for a second interview. Per Adam Schefter, that's the moment Ben Johnson decided he's staying in Detroit. Johnson said, quote, talk to my wife about it. We came to a really good decision of, hey, you know, we're happy where we are. We love where we are. We love being in Detroit. Love the people here. And then he goes on to say a lot of young coaches like to move up fast. It's not that he doesn't want to do that per se, but, quote, I love Dan Campbell. I've known him for a long time. I believe in the direction of... Of this organization and that was his biggest drawing point for him to come back what, what
1: again does that say about Dan Campbell people love him. says a
0: stu- a you know? tons about Dan Campbell but it also says something about how he feels about the guys he's working yes. with on that offense you've got a quality group of individuals on the front line you've got a, a very um, uh, cooperative quarterback in Jared Goff who mm-hmm. listens they've got a great relationship you can't find
1: that just anywhere else. And, and then you and would those, have to build uh, those other two teams, and that's going to take back, some time. back,
2: they were top five in the league for offense. He was a finalist for assistant coach of the year both seasons. Like, there's a good thing going here, mm-hmm. and he certainly thinks that.
0: And they're predicted to be top four in the new season.
2: Right. He thinks that this could be something, so he's coming back
0: amen Uh, welcome back and bye but by the way did anybody you know the the, does anybody have it better than us nobody that was tom Izzo yesterday (laughs) it was his birthday he got his 700 win and it came over michigan yes
2: 38th coach in division one history to win 700 games they routed Michigan eighty-one, sixty-two. why can't we talk to Tom Izzo today
3: <laughs> right right
0: he'll this still be, be perfect, happy on Friday yeah, he'll be
1: he'll be yeah. happy yeah, on yeah,
0: Friday be, yeah, and he did say boy all the former players coming back to help him celebrate his birthday and this moment and the Michigan game
2: and wow the Izzo saying happy birthday to him there's that video online so it's a good day to yeah. be Tom Izzo yeah
0: I don't Want to throw a wet blanket on it, but there's a story out of Detroit's West Side that isn't getting nearly enough attention, Lloyd.
1: Yeah, it's a tragic incident on Detroit's West Side. A father of six, Harold Phillips, he's fighting for his life after being viciously attacked by a group of dogs while walking home from a bus stop on Chicago and Longacre Monday night. Now, according to his wife, uh, the dogs brutally mauled him, leaving him with severe injuries. Uh, He was on his way home from a trip to the mall to prepare. For an upcoming job interview. He bought him some clothes for a job interview he had the next day and he was unexpectedly ambushed by the three dogs who escaped a nearby backyard. As they grapple with this devastating reality, the Phillips family has launched a GoFundMe campaign to cover Harold's medical expenses. They're preparing though to make a heartbreaking decision to take him off life support. He's on life support right now. The six children ages 8 to 17 now facing the unthinkable of losing their father. How about the
3: dog
4: owner? I don't owner? know what to say. My, it's my dad. It's him. He's not supposed to die like this. He's he too strong.
5: Now I'm heartbroken
4: because I don't even have a father that can
5: take care of me.
1: Now while the dogs responsible are in custody, questions remained about the owner's accountability in the tragic accident. Uh, he, he's been cited several times, Guy, for um, violations. Can you say child support for the uh, rest of his life? He should. Absolutely. Not to
0: mention whatever criminal prosecution should come down. Well, we've got Jennifer Crumbly in the dock mm-hmm. for involuntary manslaughter. What he did was just as bad. If you can't control your dogs, if you know they're vicious. Yes.
2: This is unbelievable, this dog problem here. It is. And so preventable. It's so dumb.
1: It, it
0: is. And it, it,
2: this is tragic. And those kids, oh.
1: Yeah. yeah. Man.
0: It's and, uh, positively third world, and this should be... A rallying moment for the community. People should be at city council today demanding
1: accountability for him, but also saying, This has got to stop. It's got to stop. It's too much. It's going on too much. And I fear for not just for people getting off a bus stop, walking home, minding their business, but I also fear for postal carriers. Postal carriers are in these neighborhoods and stuff, and these dogs get out, you know. But it could have been a kid walking home. Exactly. Right? It
0: could have been anybody. Yes. And therein lies this, this. and, and yet, like so many things, we're not demanding enough No, in, in terms of accountability. When we come back, some perhaps accountability and cooperation from the nation of China. Our relations couldn't be worse, but a glimmer of hope that perhaps they will help stem the flow of precursor drugs, the building blocks for fentanyl. Will it work? We'll be talking with our Fox News correspondent next on JR
1: Morning at 619. Yesterday, officials from both the U.S. and China pledged to tackle the influx of fentanyl into the United States, signaling a potential shift towards cooperation amidst some strained bilateral relations. On the JR Morning Live line to provide some insights into the latest collaborative efforts between Americans and Chinese officials is Jonathan Savage. He's Fox News radio correspondent and WJR contributor. Jonathan, good morning. Hello. Good morning. So, what do we take of this? I mean, can we trust them? You know, will will China really help us try to curb the fentanyl coming into the United States?
6: Yeah, it's not often the U.S. and China have found cause to work together in recent years. But I think if we want to figure out what's going to happen in the future, we need to look at history because in the past there was some progress being made between the two countries. Much of the fentanyl, when the synthetic opiate exploded into the United States in the last decade was made in China. And in 2019, Chinese and U.S. law enforcement jointly announced they'd worked together to break up a fentanyl smuggling ring. China took measures to stop finished fentanyl flowing from China to the U.S. But the problem now is that China is said to be the primary source of precursor chemicals. The U.S. has wanted to get China to do something about that, But the fact that the two countries' relations have deteriorated so badly in the past five years has meant that nothing has really happened until now. So it's seen as a real opportunity to make a difference.
2: Uh, Jonathan, what could come of this meeting? I know they're talking about shipments. I know they made some domestic uh, issues of warning in their own country about illicit sales
6: yeah that's right um jen daskal is leading the the delegation from the, the white house she says we need to see the results and we need to see action and in terms of the action what they want is increased coordination between the two countries law enforcement because they want to really get at the distribution and the export of these precursor chemicals that um and also um to target uh illegal financing essentially the criminal gangs financing who are uh, distributing uh, these chemicals over to Mexico where they get turned into fentanyl. So we're told that what happened yesterday, the meetings were a good start, but they're having more in-depth conversations today. This is really a long-term project.
0: Jonathan, the problem is, is these precursor chemicals, the chemical building blocks for fentanyl, there are illicit uses and then there are legitimate uses. So how will they determine who the good guys are and the bad guys are?
6: yeah it's a complex issue isn't it and I'm glad I'm not the one trying to to solve it um look these these are these are the questions which I, I think they're going to try and drill down into over the next few days because yes I mean fentanyl is um even in itself not just in terms of the 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 precursor chemicals uh, fentanyl is a medicine it's used to treat severe pain. And, and I don't know necessarily the situation in the US, but here in the UK, it's, it's a very regularly used drug by people who need it. Um, so yeah, you've got all these different different complex angles to it. The precursor chemicals have have uh, innocent uses and fentanyl itself is something which has a medical use. Uh,
1: you know, China in the past has been reluctant to cooperate on issues like fentanyl. So what was it that contributed to this recent shift in their stance? Was it did it begin with the meeting between Xi and, and, and Biden?
6: Yeah, that had a, a big part to play in it. That thawed the ice a little bit. Um, President Biden apparently uh, sort of made his uh, his his plea to President Xi. He talked about a child in Delaware who had died, um, and President Xi expressed his support and sympathy with the American people. But that actually followed a, a delegation from the Senate, which tried to kick-start things too. Um, but one other thing which seems to have made a difference, um, was that China was refusing to discuss cooperation until the U.S. lifted sanctions on one of its uh, departments, which uh, had been accused of human rights violations uh, against uh, um, Muslim ethnic groups in in parts of China. So the U.S. quietly agreed to lift those sanctions, and the Chinese foreign minister said that uh, removed a a big obstacle in talks. So we kind
0: of threw the Uyghurs under the bus in order to get them to do the right thing.
6: I think that's one of the criticisms that is likely to come the way of, of the United States. Um, yeah, this, uh, this Public Security Ministry's Institute of Forensic Science was accused of being complicit in these human rights violations against the Uyghurs. Um, now, the fact that the U.S. decided to lift the sanctions shows you um, that the, the Biden administration's priority was more on fentanyl than on the human rights of the Uyghurs.
2: We still would need cooperation from Mexico to really curb this problem, wouldn't we? I mean, there's another country involved here.
6: There is another country involved. As we were saying, uh, it is the, the precursor chemicals that make their way across the Pacific now. And you've got the, the drug cartels uh, and their their allies and aligned organizations in Mexico, which then turn it into fentanyl itself and get it across the border into the United States where it causes such devastation and such death. So, yes, this is a multi-layered problem. It's not just about China, but they're hoping that getting the grips with the China part of it will at least be a start.
0: We should point out that it's more than just talks and working groups at this point, that China has issued a notice to its domestic companies warning them against illicit sales, and they are also now submitting intelligence about suspicious shipments to the International Narcotics Control Board. So at least we're seeing some good faith beyond words.
6: Yeah, I think there is optimism as a result of that. I mean, information sharing is one of the things you mentioned there. And to increase information sharing with a country like China, which is very protective about information. I mean, just go back to the COVID pandemic and what we did or didn't know or suspect or didn't suspect about the origins of that. To get China to reveal anything about what's going on that doesn't shine its country in a good light, um, that is seen as a sign of progress. And yes, a sign of good faith.
1: Um what do you think uh, Jonathan are the the urgent priorities that need to happen like immediately to to start working towards curbing that fentanyl coming over to the United States?
6: I think for the the starting point is is going to be targeting the the people who are um, I suppose there appears to be corruption within uh, the, the creation and distribution of these precursor chemicals, doesn't there? Because that, as we're saying, they have innocent uses and getting to grips with which companies, which manufacturers are um, sidelining some of these chemicals for distribution uh, to the gags in Mexico, cutting that link. I think that's probably going to be one of the main things, but also figuring out about the money going the other way because clearly there's a there's a, an organized crime transfer of money for for chemicals here and cutting that link across the pacific ocean is going to be one of the first things to
1: do law enforcement working you know everybody's law enforcement working close together
6: yeah absolutely um there are barriers there are cultural barriers there are language barriers uh, there are geographical barriers um so increasing that coordination, getting them to work together is, is going to be part of that for sure.
0: Well, and part of the complication too is we're at loggerheads with Mexico over migration. We're trying to get their cooperation on that as well. So we're throwing a lot on their plate and they're not being very cooperative on either.
6: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the border issue, um, that's, not my area of expertise, and I will defer right, to
0: but it, you on that. You, but clearly, it complicates this this right. this, this this effort yeah. uh, in terms of interdicting it once it gets there, and they start to put these components together. But dialogue
2: yeah. with China is good.
1: Absolutely, it, it, no question. Jonathan Savage, Fox News Radio correspondent, WJR contributor. We appreciate you this morning. Thank you.
6: Great to talk to you. Take care.
1: Coming up at 635, uh, General Motors planning on bringing in hybrid options to the North American market. We'll talk more about that as the J.R. Morning Show continues on 760 WJR.
0: If you heard the sound of cheering yesterday, it wasn't just about the news that Ben Johnson was staying with the Lions. It was auto dealers saying, thank goodness we have a product mix that we can sell. With word from General Motors Chairman Larry, Mary Barra and her uh, teleconference call with analysts stating that, yes, General Motors is going to go back into the hybrid business and give consumers a bridge to an EV future rather than forcing EVs upon them that they are just not ready for. Uh, what does this mean going forward, though, in terms of complying with all of the very strict emissions mandates out there? Keith Naughton watching it all for uh, Bloomberg Business. He is their auto business reporter. Keith, good morning. Morning, guy. This is manna from heaven for dealers who have been begging for some kind of an option for, to to confront consumers who say we're just not ready for this yet. But again, we've got the state of California, we've got the Biden administration jamming up automakers with these very strict emissions regulations. How can they fulfill and comply?
7: Yeah, I mean hybrids are hot right now, guy. Uh, they've really made a strong comeback. As you know, we've had hybrids on the market. For a quarter century, the Prius from Toyota has been around forever. But last year, hybrid sales grew by 65%, which is a faster rate than, than electric vehicle sales grew, and they represent more of the market. Consumers are looking at hybrids and saying, this is a good kind of middle ground. I can still lower my carbon footprint, I can get better mileage, and I don't have to worry about charging, and these cost a lot less.
0: But will they face sanctions from the Californias and the followers of California and also the Biden administration that say, no, we need you to be full EV by this date?
7: Yeah, you know, I think what dealers are saying and certainly what the GM dealers were selling Mary Barra is we need to have vehicles we can sell here and now. And EV growth is slowing. Uh, It's only expected to grow about 10 or 11 percent this year versus Forty-seven percent last year, so they need an EV now. And you can still, you know, get credit for uh, making progress on the emissions regulations, even as they toughen with a hybrid. So it does give the auto companies something. It's better than just selling an ICE vehicle. But obviously, the ultimate goal of the Biden administration is is to go all EV. The way they are structuring the regulations, the market would be three-quarters EV by 2032.
2: Um, these numbers, GM sold 2.6 million vehicles in the United States last year. 75,000 and change were electric. However, they were the discontinued Bolt EV. I mean, do they go back to that since it was successful?
7: You know what Mary Barr has said, uh, they did discontinue the Bolt in December. Uh, they're going to bring the name Bolt back in some way, but on GM's uh, new Ultium battery. That, they say, is their future. That's going to underpin their electric vehicles, but the launch has been very slow. Mary Barra said she's been disappointed in it. Um, This year, they're going to come with more kind of popular-priced vehicles, more vehicles that will be in the middle of the market. So they're hoping uh, they get the growth, but they need the hybrids for now to fill in the gap.
1: And you know, and given the industry's uh that the recent emphasis on EVs, you know, what role do you see these plug-in EVs playing in the broader context of, of GM's electric vehicle portfolio and and the automotive market really as a whole?
7: Yeah, you know, GM had a had a plug-in EV called the Volt with a V that they discontinued in 2019. A lot of people are saying that's the first one they should bring back cuz that vehicle Amen. Uh, you, you could you could go for more than 50 miles just on electricity mm-hmm. before the gas engine kicked in. So it, it was a kind of an engineering marvel, but it was small. It didn't fit the truck and SUV trend. So maybe take that technology and put it in a vehicle type that's more popular.
0: So what does this do to General Motors' financials? I mean, they were looking at a future where they were going to do ice vehicles phasing out to EVs now you've got to develop another product line up here in the middle to act as a bridge how much is that going to squeeze margins and add to their development costs
7: you know we're seeing this over at ford is, As as pivot is more back to ice vehicles and and hybrids which are profitable vehicles it actually helps the financials about so you know gm beat estimates yesterday in their earnings and their forecast for the year was much higher than uh, Wall Street expected, which you know helped their stock yesterday. The, the fact remains, they make money selling ICE vehicles. Those are the most profitable vehicles. People want SUVs and pickup trucks. And so the more of those they sell, the better they do. It's the question that you raised earlier, Guy. you got to meet these more stringent emissions regulations that are coming not that far down the road. So they have to prepare for that.
2: What about Ford and Stellantis? I know they haven't reported yet, but where are they in all of this?
7: Well, uh, Ford and Stellantis both have, you know, good hybrid businesses. Uh, Ford in particular does very well with its uh, hybrid F-150 pickup truck. They're doubling production of that truck. They expect it to be 20% of sales of F-150, which is the top-selling vehicle in America. They also have a very hot seller in the Maverick hybrid, their small truck. Uh, That that represents 60% of of Maverick sales. Over at Stellantis, they have uh, plug-in hybrids with uh, Jeep. The Jeep Wrangler uh, and Grand Cherokee both have plug-in hybrids that are very popular. So GM has been out of the hybrid game for several years. They really need to get back in to compete with their direct competitors. That's what their dealers were telling them.
0: What about the the uh, court of public opinion here? We know that the, those are on the far left, the green energy folks. Um, they didn't like it when Toyota, I mean, they tried to throw Akio Toyota off the board, for goodness sakes, when he had the temerity to suggest that going full EV was a fool's errand. Um, how will they react politically to this news from General Motors?
7: Yeah, Toyota's just looking pretty smart right now as the top hybrid seller. Uh, with hybrids as as hot as they are. Uh, You know, what Toyota's point is, driving a hybrid does still lower your your carbon footprint. It does still do something uh, toward attacking climate change. So, you know, it'll be interesting to watch the environmental groups. They have been harshly critical of Toyota for not uh, going full EV. So that's that's the question on, you know, how are people going to look at hybrids. It's still an advancement. And, you know, are you gonna, you know, sacrifice the good for the perfect?
0: Exactly. And I think they've, the case that they've made, Keith, um, showing how much it shrinks the carbon footprint quicker, more affordably, and, and and it's better than the rejection that you were getting from consumers. It's like, it's not half a loaf. Take, take an 80% <laughs> loaf, for goodness sakes.
7: Yeah, it's some electricity rather than no electricity with with an ICE vehicle. And, you know, the average price of a hybrid is $42,000. The average price of an electric vehicle is $60,000. Yeah, yeah. What's happening is mainstream consumers are pragmatic. They're saying, I can't afford that vehicle, and I'm worried about the charging infrastructure. With a hybrid, there's no worry about the charging infrastructure, and the price is right.
1: So will this, uh, you know, with the with GM going into hybrids and the other companies uh, with their hybrids, is this going to, you know, uh, maybe wake up the Biden administration and tell them maybe they need to kind of slow down on their acceleration of adopting these EVs in the U- U.S. so quickly?
7: That's what that's what the uh, dealers are pushing for. They've been writing President Biden, asking him to tap the brakes uh, on EV mandates. It's going to be a very Um, I think, talked about uh, issue in the presidential election this year, uh, because Donald Trump is is anti-EV. He calls them job killers. And that's been a point that really resonates with a lot of voters. So that'll be something that will be key to the debate between the two candidates. No
0: question that the green energy debate has been a tough one for the Biden administration and a good one for Republicans. Keith, we appreciate your time, sir. Sure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Keith Naughton, Bloomberg Business Reporter, and uh, you can read him at Bloomberg.com. Good stuff. When we come back, the Crumbly trial. A school official says he didn't have reasonable suspicion to search Ethan Crumbly's book bag. Well, what is reasonable in the minds of the parents who suffered such tragic losses? That story next on JR Morning at 649. Time for your Mobility Minute, S&P, Global Mobility Minute with Stephanie Brindley, brought to you by Dana. Dana, people finding a better way.
8: The likelihood of a second Biden-Trump contest this year sets up potential for another dramatic shift in U.S. environmental policy in 2025. This could profoundly impact the auto industry. Change in the White House leadership or in Congressional majority may lead to changes in the federal tax credits and incentives meant to spur manufacture and purchase of zero-emissions vehicles and to the regulatory environment. Changes in the availability or allocation of funding could trigger changes in capital allocation and timing for planned automaker and supplier investments. If compliance requirements are lowered, the market could move more slowly to ZEVs and put medium-term investment plans into question. In the long term, however, continued progress to a ZEV future is supported by global policies and is expected to continue. S&P Global Mobility's baseline forecasts sees U.S. EV light vehicle market share near 45% in 2030. Depending on the actions of the next administration, that share could be below 37% or over 50%. I'm Stephanie Brindley with this week's Automotive Minute from S&P Global Mobility, formerly IHS Markit.
2: Day four of the trial of Jennifer Crumbly came to a close yesterday. We learned a lot of things. We saw pictures of the house. We saw Jennifer Crumbly in the back of a squad car talking about how she'd never talk to her son again. The details that continue to come out are just heartbreaking. Following it all is Sean Lay, my colleague over at WDIV. Good morning, Sean.
9: Good morning, Jamie. Thanks for having me.
2: Of course, you've been telling the story beautifully since this all happened. So what is your takeaway from yesterday?
9: I was going to ask to go around the studio and see if anyone, you know, Jamie, yourself, let me you just ask you since I'm speaking with you. Has there been an aha moment for you in this trial where you slap the desk and say, aha, this is why this case is being prosecuted? Has there been that moment?
2: I don't think so for me. I'm just like shocked by all of the missed opportunities, all of these people surrounding this event that could have stopped it.
9: That's the tragedy of it all. Take a step back yesterday. So Monday, Sean Hopkins, school counselor, Oxford school uh, on the witness stand. We heard him in the exam also pretty much the same exact testimony. Yesterday, you've got the Dean of Students in charge of discipline, Nicholas Ejek. If you're at Oxford, you're all members of the community and went through this horrible thing. If you're Oxford parent, or had a child injured or god forbid killed in this this is litigating all these facts that we already know the tragedy of not taking a step further sean hopkins looks at the worksheet with all the graphic images on it and where the words the the thoughts won't stop help me um and he's he's thinking suicide he's suicidal the entire time i get that he seems like a, a sensitive guy right but where is the next step? Where is the district handbook? Okay, now what do we do? Is this the case? Uh, he said the best place for him, he felt, was going back to the classroom. And you know, he said the parents uh, didn't want to take him out of school. We kind of the backfill on that is uh, Jennifer Crumley was working, and, and we're all a lot of us are working parents. You know, I tell my mm-hmm. kids all the time, Mom, Dad work, we work, and this is what we do. Uh, so she had felt pressure to get back. And then we get Nicholas Eject, He's in charge of discipline. And the answer is yesterday, you know, over and over again, this didn't rise to uh, anything disciplinary reason. I'm I'm asking myself, and I asked a well-known attorney in town, what does it take for uh, any school officials, their counselor or dean, what is it going to take for them to, you know, take a step back and say, let's call the resource office, call the sheriff's office, let's call a doctor, you know, let's let's get. Uh, surround, we have school shootings in this country when maybe not thinking school shooting, and that was the, the blind spot that they don't think it ever could happen here. But so, what does it take? If you're in a TSA line, go ahead and try, say, read off that paper or say, you know, gun, something of that nature and, and see what happens.
1: Sean, uh, something that that stood out to me as well is her uh, contacting her boss and the, these these text messages back and forth with her boss. Like there was no one else that she could Speak, speak to about this.
9: And the text messages were, you know, I got to go. And then the the gun is gone, the ammunition is gone, and then uh, he did it. Uh, call me a lawyer. So if you're sitting in the jury and a lot of these, there's a lot of evidence being presented that's either circumstantial or they're asking the jury to go back in the room and find her guilty in the voluntary manslaughter. And take a step back. Does she, she said, I need my job. And I need an attorney. The big picture on that is a lot of the reaction from her. And there isn't a lot of follow up I think by the prosecutor on why these things are being presented, but there's those text messages. Mm-hmm. You know, go a step further. What does that mean? And what are you what are you trying to say? And then there's the first video of her being brought in after the shooting to the sheriff's office and we're looking at her reaction and then the 45-minute video yesterday of her in the back of a squad car for the sheriff's office mm-hmm. after she met with the sheriff. And what do we what are we to make of her reaction? Everyone I think reacts differently. And she was telling her boss, you know, what was happening, why she needed to leave. A lot of the things though, after, you know, a school, your your son commits a school shooting, you know it. And her reaction is a lot about herself guys. Uh, Bringing it back. You know, we, one of the first things she said to the sheriff's office when she sat down in the interview room was we've never done anything wrong. And then the next uh, utterance was we need a lawyer. The uh, investigator said, we need your help. We need, we need to get to the bottom. What happened? And James Crumley starts to explain and, and say where the gun was in the house and where the ammunition was in the house, and then Jennifer Crumley says, "I'm not interviewing," and and shuts him down. Mm-hmm. And he, yes, in the in the squad car, then uh, you've got big chunks of time where she doesn't say anything. What would your reaction be? You know, is a horrific thing. I guess we all react differently, but I guess the takeaway, guys, the jury has to, you know, either say this is. Uh, this is guilty of involuntary manslaughter or everyone react yeah. And how about the pictures in the house guys that they're, they're filthy the house is a mess but where's the follow-up where you know who's responsible for that we you supposed to think jennifer crumley
0: is a
9: horrible person because the house is a mess and james crumley and uh, the shooter lived there too
0: yeah you asked for an aha moment sean and for me it was the fact that they had a gun safe but never set the combination Never or or zero, used it. Zero, they zero. had a cable lock, but they never used it, and and never that to used, me is 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 a shocking aha moment. But the other part is this, and I want to know from you what you think the value will be to the jury. You had two trained school officials say, "Well, I didn't have reasonable cause to search the bag. We didn't have what we thought was enough information to go to the principal and initiate a full on threat assessment." What what, what, need, what how the, what will the defense say to the jury here? look, these are trained professionals. If they didn't see a threat, how can we hold Jennifer Crumbley accountable? Because she's not a trained professional. Why should she see the threat? Exactly. How valuable was that testimony the for the, the defense head. yesterday?
3: And
9: I think Susan Smith did a good job. I think these prosecution witnesses kind of helped out Susan Smith in her defense, kind of giving her something to, to go on here because she was saying to e- uh, Eject, the Dean of Students, you know, do you share, uh, he's been in your school for a while. What did you share with Jennifer Crumlin? What kind of information? What did you put on uh, Power School? What's there for her? And, and nothing, there's nothing there. You know, this guy has no history with the school. They're not really aware of him and she's not being told anything. And, you know, parents need to be involved, obviously. We're all involved parents. But are we supposed to think that she's, you know, responsible for all this, the gun lock in the safe. Yeah, that is a, a jaw-dropping thing. Probably James Crumbly was in charge of that, do you think? I'm not sure. They didn't really say uh, Jennifer Crumley didn't lock it up. Uh, and he said it was hidden in the house, but obviously, you know, it was found. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of information Right, here, but at but- any
0: moment, she could have said to school officials, hey, we have a gun, yes, That's exactly, and we right. should that, find out where it is. And that so, may be the yep. most damning thing is the inaction and the failure to act.
9: Why did they sit there and do that? And that's the the head-scratcher, and that's the tragedy of it all. And then you've got the dean of students who picked up the backpack Mm -hmm. and made a joke about how heavy it was. And did Jennifer Crumley put the gun in her son's hand? The the dean of students did, handed it over, sent him back to class. But you're right. They sat there, and why did they not say, hey, we just got him a gun? Let's let's take a step back. Let's pump the brakes here and check everything out. And Uh there was a rush to talk to them, and then they have to go. It ended abruptly, and off he went to class.
2: Sean, it seems to me like you don't have an aha moment. You don't think the prosecution is getting to the point of involuntary manslaughter. We only have a minute left.
9: Okay. Um, I'm not going to, you know, rule, you know, I'm not on the jury and I'm not being asked a really tough job about this. I think Guy hit it on the head, not saying that they bought him a gun, but this is a big deal. This case has never been tried before. Does there have to be more or is there already enough to you?
2: Uh, that's for the jury to yeah. decide. I that's mean, right. right. it's just every day something comes out that's just more heartbreaking that someone could have done something.
9: Someone could have done something, but, you know, is it Jennifer Crumley responsible partly? And what about the other people involved in the tragedy? Mm-hmm.
3: Exactly. And
9: you could sit there yesterday and think, how come if we're going to charge one person with two people with volunteer, man? So how about charging more? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because this is an awful, awful situation where you know, everything went wrong and no one really – uh Just took a step back and say, wait, guys. And that's what everyone would pray and hope for, but that's not what happened. And we'll see what's on the stand today. And she may testify. We heard a lot from her in these videos. But she may go on the stand and and explain what happened with her as
2: well. We'll We'll have to
9: wait and see if that happens.
2: We will certainly keep an eye on all of your reporting. Sean Lay, WDIV, we appreciate you. Coming up next on JR Morning, uh, we'll talk about the topics of the day.
3: Good morning and
0: welcome to Wednesday as we get over the hump. Uh, got some good news on the Lions that we'll get to. Our offensive coordinator is going to stay in-house, which is a wonderful thing. And uh, the future looks a little bit brighter as we continue to kind of uh, get through our morning phase. Um, the uh, interesting story yesterday, folks aren't quitting their jobs. The uh, The number of so-called quits is down 12 percent. I I think there's really some consternation on how to view this because it seems to indicate that people are no longer so confident they can find another job that they can just go off and quit and find something that they feel is a better fit, which may be an indication that the job market is softening. Mm -hmm. The other side is now you've got a measure of stability for employers, that you don't have people just up and quitting. Revolving door. Exactly. Um, So it's uh, – we had 6.1 million fewer quits uh, than we did in 2022 which is a good thing uh, but others are saying it's kind of bad news for the economy because it signals maybe less confidence in it um I would bet employers are telling you hey we're gonna t- take what we can get here this <laughs> i I'm tired of uh, of competing against something that I have no control over which is the Uh, You know whether or not they think the grass is greener doesn't take
1: into account quiet quitting does it?
0: No, no (laughs) Yeah, so that's a whole nother thing. but something that I know that you were kind of agitated about there is a new report out showing that workers who work fully remote five days a week were 35% more likely to be laid off than their peers who do hybrid or work in office and it's because of the most human of, of elements I don't feel like I know you, and that makes it easier for me to lay you off. Oh, yeah. Which is, you know. Don't feel that attachment. If if you allow it, then you should treat everybody equally and find a way to do that.
2: Yeah, it should be about your production. Yeah.
0: It should be about objective measures and merits, not whether it's easier for you to give someone a pink slip because you don't see them on a regular basis uh, but nevertheless the new data showing that when you're making some career choices here about whether or not you're gonna go hybrid or fully remote it may work for you to be at home with the kids it may work in terms of childcare, but just consider uh, the simple facts that it could be a career killer one way or another the, 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 the remote job you save may be the job that you mm-hmm. don't
1: have
3: mm-hmm.
0: tomorrow uh, meantime, um, we've got uh, some major developments in the case about reproductive rights in the state of Michigan. We know Right to Life launched a lawsuit claiming that the Prop 3, which passed with 57% support, uh, may be unconstitutional. Well, now the opponents are fighting back.
2: Yeah, Attorney D- General Dana Nessel's office argues anti-abortion groups don't have the legal standing to file a legal challenge to Michigan's voter-approved amendment guaranteeing abortion ac- access. Uh, they argued this in a court filing submitted on Tuesday. And um, basically, they believe that since Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court in 2022, things like this are going to continue to come up. Dana Nessel has advocated for abortion access during her tenure as attorney general. She said, you know, this is concerning since other judges have heard cases and granted decisions restricting access to abortion and reproductive health. Um, But she doesn't think this one has merit but she wants this to be public that she's fighting against it for those reasons that she stated
0: and you know there is a certain amount i think of a, a understandable concern on her part she said you know this ultimately can could erode our faith in democracy voters thought they had a voice in this they exercised voters their vote it. they passed it by a, a significant margin mm-hmm. And now it can be undone in the courts, and it begs the question, are we in charge, or will it all come down to one judge and special
1: interest groups? Because what's going to happen in the future on other times that we vote on certain...
0: Exactly, and are we now entering this incredible revolving door of ballot proposals and countersuits?
1: You know, uh, Michigan's uh, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, she's advocating for the reinstatement of driver's ed and more public schools statewide. Two decades ago, uh, Michigan decentralized driver's education, shifting the responsibility from schools to parents and teens who often face financial burdens in securing these qualified instructors. Benson's office highlighting a concerning trend, a 10% decrease in licensed teen drivers since 2000. She warns that this decline could limit educational and employment prospects for teens while increasing transportation challenges for families. Moreover, it may contribute to more unlicensed drivers on Michigan roads. Now, to address these issues, Benson proposing not only reintroducing driver's ed to schools, but also providing grants to financially disadvantaged teens for private lessons, although funding specifics, uh, you know, a little little shady there. But Benson has engaged with the governor and state budget office to explore the implementation, and I remember, you know, back in high school, it was in school.
2: Things were different. You had yeah, shop I mean, class. Yeah, you shop were talking class. about that. Yeah,
1: yeah, shop class. We had uh, uh, home ec,
0: right? <laughs> <And> Typing. <laughs> but here is the other thing: they have shifted so much of the responsibility for training drivers now onto parents. You yeah. must log so many hours with That's your child. True. All things that as parents we probably ought to be doing anyway. Mm-hmm. But it just begs the question: do, every student doesn't have an engaged parent that will do that. that is correct and what do you end up with you end up with some drivers that don't have the necessary experience out there or put it off until they're beyond 18 when they don't have the oversight that's right
2: and it's kind of like well why do I care well these drivers are on the same roads. you're sharing the
0: roads with them every day and while we've heaven knows we've seemed to have cornered the market on dumb adults that can't put down their cell phones when they're driving right where we're having a whole nother problem with with younger generation had a good conversation with Jonathan Savage, our Fox News correspondent, about a glimmer of hope that this fentanyl crisis, which takes the lives of 70,000 Americans every year, that we may now finally have an inroad of cooperation with the nation of China uh, because it's China that's supplying the chemical building blocks which are being used in Mexico to create the fentanyl drug. Will it mean fewer pill modes, fewer uh, of these chemical uh, building blocks? We hope so. There is plenty of uh, evidence that uh, China has not been doing its job, but there have been some now new seizures. There have been reports to the International Policing Bureau saying, hey, this is a bad actor. Uh, NBC asked Jen Daskal, who is the lead negotiator on behalf of the U.S., is this really going to change things?
4: For Americans who are
8: wondering, can it really work? What would you tell them? I would tell them that this is an important step. We obviously have areas of disagreements with China, but there are areas of mutual cooperation.
1: What does this mean for legal uses, though, of fentanyl? Because we use it in hospital settings and and different things for for pain and all that. Will that will that have a, uh, a, a you know a problem? Will we have a problem getting it for that?
0: The very same precursor drugs that China is shipping to Mexico for illicit uses, they are also shipping to legal drug right. makers to make fentanyl products that are used every day in our nation's hospitals. So, and therein lies the complexity mm-hmm. of trying to wrap your head around who's the bad actor and who isn't. Um, But, again, we've already seen some declines in those precursor drugs. The other thing is we need a heck of a lot more cooperation from From Mexico. Mexico, Mexico. yeah. uh, Because they are allowing too many bad actors within their borders. Time for WJR Business Beat. Let's check in with Jeff Sloan, CEO and founder of Startup Nation, to check on the technological and startup sector of our economy. Brought to you by shelving.com. We rack your world. Good morning, Jeff
5: good morning guy lloyd jamie one of the most important facilitators in small business growth these days as it has been historically is access to credit and we all know this is one tough environment to source it today and for many small businesses that rely on sources of credit to keep their businesses afloat and smooth out those peaks and valleys of their cash flow many are simply struggling to access credit and that not only stunts growth, it can literally lead to a death blow. New data from Payments Intelligence highlights the challenges small businesses are facing today when it comes to accessing credit to support their businesses. Only 48% of small businesses generating annual revenues of $10 million or less report having access to business or personal financing. What to do? Well, according to Payments Research, many small businesses are having to get creative And that includes relying on business credit cards, specifically corporate cards, which as a source has emerged as the most common form of business financing in the small business landscape today. According to the report, the study found that 30% of small businesses have no plans to seek financing in the next 12 months and are going to try instead to ride out this difficult time. While only a quarter of small businesses hope to source financing this year, 52% of those are looking to business credit cards as that potential financing source. Why are they turning to corporate credit cards as the most popular source of working capital credit these days? Well, turning to these cards is a source of credit that provides ability to cover both anticipated and unforeseen expenses with an ability to tailor their payments with much more flexibility. Beyond corporate credit cards as a source at number one, business loans from online lenders comes in at number two, while equipment financing comes in at number three as the most likely source of credit this year. All of this, guys, paints a picture of how incredibly difficult it is to be a small business owner these days and get through what is still a post-COVID challenging period of time. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com. The source for everything you need to start and grow your own business. And that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR.
2: Full disclosure, I watch Bravo. I watch all the Housewives. <laughs> they are all on Ozempic, and they're open about it, and they've lost a ton of weight, and it makes you think, well, should I be George, on
0: George Conway, uh, I don't know if you've noticed. Yes. I saw him the other day on CNN. He was like, oh, what? happened half of George is gone Gone, yeah right
2: exactly and it makes you think should I do it but doctors say it is not a magic pill and the best source of information about those drugs is a medical expert so let's bring one in Dr. Suki Singh medical director of Henry Ford's health health weight management program good morning doctor good morning are you getting a lot of ask about it because of social media because of these crazy shows where all the women are on it
4: so my clinic is the Obesity Medicine Clinic at Henry Ford, so that's what we specialize in. And some of those asks are coming from social media, fortunately and unfortunately.
2: Well, can we just talk about, I know it's a diabetes drug, how does it work, who is getting it?
4: Of course. So Ozempic itself is uh, specifically for type 2 diabetes, but there's another one called Wegovy, which is the same-based drug called semaglutide and that is specifically for weight loss and um, the way these newer class of medications work is they reduce a lot of the food noise and most patients that struggle with the disease of obesity stroke um, are are fighting daily and they help you get fuller on smaller portions of meals and also it also drives up the metabolism So that when you are eating, if you do it the right way with the high protein diet and enough fruits and vegetables, you're able to see good results with your weight. Obviously, you have to add in the exercise alongside because there is a risk of muscle mass loss. So overall, good drugs, but there are side effects associated with them.
1: And, Dr. Singh, do you think about the fact that those with type 2 diabetes who really need this medication, it may end up being a shortage of the medication because people are using it for weight loss and those who need it for their diabetes won't be able to get it?
4: We have seen a, a shortage with Ozempic as well as Wegovy because of such high demand. And then now the newer drug ZepBound that's coming from Eli Lilly is specifically for obesity treatment. And um, that has helped with kind of filling in the gaps for patients that are struggling to get Vagovi and then Manjaro for patients that have type 2 diabetes that have not been able to get Ozempic.
0: There is a huge financial component to this. These drugs are very expensive. Insurance companies are being asked to to cover them. And yet, do we really know what the long-term consequences are and the long-term effectiveness?
4: You know, that That's a question that remains unknown at this time. What we do know is if we treat the disease of obesity in time, there is fortunately that reduction in cardiovascular disease, diabetes, kidney disease, decreased risk of certain cancers, which will obviously save money down the line. But right now, with how costly these medications are, and if the patients are not pairing it with the right diet and exercise... They have to be accepting that they're going to remain on these medications forever. And that's not the course of the disease of obesity treatment. It should be that let's put in the right tools in place so the patients can eventually titrate off of these medications and be able to adhere to their diet plan and exercise and maintain that weight loss.
2: Should anyone take these drugs or is there a BMI threshold that you should take into account? Who
0: are the best candidates?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. So, there is a BMI threshold uh, that every prescribing physician should consider or a mid-level. And uh, what they're approved for by the FDA is if a patient's BMI is 27 or above with what we call metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol heart disease and such, those are good candidates. And or if a patient's BMI is thirty or above, those are the two classes that we need to consider prior to even prescribing the medications. And that's where the coverage comes in from insurance companies. If patients are not fitting into those criteria, they don't cover these medications.
2: And there are people who aren't candidates, if say you have thyroid a history of thyroid cancer, such as, you know, things like that.
4: Correct. So if there is personal or family history of what we call MEN2 syndrome, there's a specific type of thyroid cancer, like a medullary thyroid cancer. Uh, these drugs should not be considered. And if there's personal history of pancreatitis, these drugs should not be considered or even started. And those are the things that are not being assessed when we're seeing patients going to these boutique clinics to get medications.
1: Dr. Singh, talk about the side effects. You you kind of mentioned side effects. What are the side effects of, of uh, these particular drugs?
4: Sure. So initially when the patients are starting off, there's a lot of GI side effects associated with them. Typically it's nausea, can be vomiting, uh, in certain cases, initially diarrhea, down the line constipation. And what we're also seeing is patients that, again, are not being monitored closely on these medications or ending up with with, with a disease called ileus where their intestines get stuck and that's a complication that requires hospitalizations so it's very mm. crucial for patients to be monitored very closely when they're on these medications and they need to work with a dietitian and someone who can provide them exercise uh, uh, alongside
0: well and that's the, the the big problem here is that i mean we only see the benefits, right? Mm-hmm. We see right. the celebrity or the media personality who all of a sudden is half of their former self. And we go, oh, my gosh, that works great. That must be great for me. You don't hear about the same celebrity or media person going into the hospital because their GI shutdown. They're
2: not talking mm-hmm. about their gastrointestinal problems.
3: No, no.
0: and by oh, golly, exactly. they should.
4: <laughs> of course. And, you know, we call our doctor TikTok now instead of Dr. Google because that's where most patients are getting their information from and coming in requesting these medications but you know if i have 10 patients out of those three or four may not be a candidate for the injectables and then two or three may not have their insurance cover and then there are other medications that we can use some of the older drugs that are orals that we could still plug in so what i tell my patients is when you're ready to make that change in your lifestyle, if you're struggling with your disease of obesity, come in and talk to us. Let's do a consultation. Let's sit down and see what is your best option because going to someone who doesn't understand the complexity of this disease and the complexity of the of these medications is not going to give you – they're not going to give you the long-term um, vision of what your disease could be could be like as well as what your progress could be like it's very short term and that's not the goal behind treating obesity
2: so the takeaway if you're listening if you saw it on social media is just go talk to your doctor and see if it's right for you correct doctor agreed. yes agreed okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right.
0: The other takeaway is nausea, vomiting, constipation, all of those things that are not our favorite things. That's right. That which you don't nobody see. wants to talk <laughs> That's about. Right. You, you need about to
2: it. weigh that as well. Yeah. No pun intended on weigh. <laughs> Dr. Suki Singh, medical director of Henry Ford Health's weight management program. Thank you for joining us this morning. I was very interested in this topic.
4: Thank you for having me. Great talking with you all.
0: Yeah, we've all got that 20 pounds that we can't lose, or 10 pounds. Yeah, and then baby you wonder, well,
4: weight. Yeah.
2: If, after- if
1: there's a pill for that, why not? How long do well, you take the pill? you got to take it forever, because if you stop taking it, does the weight come put back? put it right back.
2: Exactly. Uh, all right, let's switch gears. Michigan missing out on knowledge jobs of the future. Some are saying our priorities are misplaced. We're going to talk about it next at 735.
0: So let this thing sink in for a moment. The state of Michigan, which used to lead the nation in personal income and net worth, or at least we were top 10, top 5, we are now 39th in the nation when it comes to per capita personal income. And we're trending, once the numbers come in, to fall behind Idaho and at least one other state and be 41st. I mean, pretty soon we're going to be in Mississippi territory, folks. And the reason is, according to one prominent group, We've got our priorities in the wrong place. We keep chasing low-wage jobs instead of high-knowledge jobs. Lou Glazer is president and co-founder of Michigan Future, Inc. Just dropped a very important study on how we're missing out. Lou joins us live this morning. Hello, sir. Morning. Help me understand the difference. I mean, we we know that in some cases we're spending billions on these battery jobs, which deliver incomes below $50,000 a year, and we're missing out on the high-knowledge jobs. What qualifies as a high-knowledge manufacturing job uh, under your definitions?
10: Yeah, although most of the high-knowledge jobs are not uh, manufacturing. So uh, here are the industries where the average wages uh, in Michigan are over $100,000. Nationally, it's like 125000 Um, So it's information, which is um, telecommunications, uh, software and media, uh, finance and insurance, uh, corporate headquarters, and this catch-all category called professional services, which is law firms, engineering firms, accounting firms, on and on and on and then three manufacturing industries aerospace chemicals and pharmaceuticals uh... and computers but, but a vast majority of the jobs are in the non-manufacturing knowledge jobs, and they have two characteristics. Um, one is they've got much higher wages than the, than the average wage for everybody. But secondly, all of the industries, even the three manufacturing industries, a preponderance of the workers have four-year degrees. So that's why they get called knowledge uh, jobs. So... What we, what we, this report, what was important for us, and the us is Don Grimes from the University of Michigan and myself is, is that we were re-releasing a report that we did in 2004. The 2004 report said uh, Michigan is going to be a poor state unless we grow the knowledge economy in Michigan yeah. and concentrate uh, young professionals. We didn't. And we went from six, 16th in 1999 to 39th in uh, 2022. Um, so we spent 20 years sort of focused on the wrong stuff, and we're paying the price for it.
3: Yeah,
0: you didn't say I told you so, and, and we, nope. we, you, you were very nice not to do that, but you could have easily said, hey, we, we told you this 20 years ago.
1: Lou, what, what do you think are the barriers to the challenges uh, or the challenges that's hindering the transition, in your opinion?
10: Well, from our perspective, I think the biggest barrier is is that well there are two big barriers first, no one seems to care that we're thirty ninth I mean no one pays a price for the state's uh, prosperity collapsing uh the press really, to be honest with you, does not cover it. never ask politicians about what do you you know we've fallen from sixteenth and thirty ninth what are you gonna do about it so you know Sandy Berua, the head of the Detroit Regional Chamber, just did a House on fire speech. That's the first time anybody's given a speech like that. so the first is is that we gotta care about it that we've got to that the fact that the unemployment rate is low, but people can't pay the bills needs to become a priority in the second. Uh, All of our economic development focus, as Guy was mentioning, has been focused on manufacturing plants um, and not on the knowledge economy, and that has to switch. Manufacturing plants now have average wages about the same as the nation, but Michigan is missing. What makes us 39th is is that we just have way too few high-paid jobs, and we've got to have a high-wage economic development strategy.
2: Uh, Lou, we did a college tour, and these colleges are trying to uh, retain these young people and get them ready right. for software and AI and these higher-paying knowledge-based jobs. That's got to help moving forward, right?
10: Absolutely. No question. Although <clears throat> if you look at the industries right now, you know, like finance insurance is on there and corporate headquarters are on there, it, it really is a bachelor's degree with any major. It's not just STEM um so but yes i mean but but uh so the one of the priorities for the state is is to have a k-16 system that is preparing that is having a lot more kids complete four-year degrees there's still way too many kids that go to college uh, and don't finish and so we've got to focus on four-year degrees uh, we've got to focus on completion rates. And then when they graduate, we got to have places where they want to live so they don't go to Chicago or New York or Denver.
0: Yeah, but there seems to be a certain element of of, of a self-inflicted wound here because when Sandy Berua and the folks of the Greater Regional Chamber did a survey ahead of the Mackinac conference, right. they found that only 12% of Michiganders thought a four-year degree was necessary to get a better-paying job we don't believe in the value of that higher education and apparently we're happy to accept a a a lower um experience of prosperity
10: yes yeah no that 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 is a major part of the problem now i will argue that one of the reasons why that percentage is going down is is that people with clout uh, the business community included but uh, elected officials in both political parties have spent the last decade telling kids you don't need a four-year degree, you can do just as well uh, with a certificate, a bachelor, uh, associate's degree, or whatnot. It simply is not true. I mean, I always use the example right now. Uh, you know, people are told that going to a coding boot camp is the same as getting an engineering degree from Lawrence Tech. Not true.
1: What about a collaboration between government and educational institutions and private sector, you know, how can they facilitate this transition into this more knowledge-based economy in Michigan?
10: Yeah, well, so the first thing is is that uh if you can get an agreement amongst those three sectors that the knowledge economy is the focus of an economic development, they can do terrific things together. Uh, Starting with, uh, you know, just sort of messaging that we just talked about, but, but also there's a whole set of initiatives you can do. The one thing that is absolutely essential, young people before they have kids, young college graduates before they have kids are way over concentrated in vibrant central cities, uh, where you do not need to own a car. Uh, Michigan does not have competitive cities, and we obviously are horrible at transit, so Mm -hmm. So cities matter, uh, along with the three that, uh, that you mentioned. Absolutely. If, they got all, if all those groups got together and said the knowledge economy is the priority, it would make a huge difference in Michigan.
0: So how do we incentivize these knowledge jobs, Lou? Right now we've got this SOAR fund. We're throwing billions at battery plants to move here. Yeah. What do we need to do to light a fire for the knowledge economy?
10: So I'm not exactly sure anybody knows the answer. That the reason why in 2004 we said the two things that matter were uh, concentration in knowledge-based industries and concentration of 25 to 34 olds with four-year degrees is because talent is talent is now attracting capital. So rather than incentivizing companies we need to figure out ways in which young professionals want to live in michigan so let me just tell you a quick story so we lost uh detroit and grand rapids competed for the amazon second headquarters neither of them made the top 20. northern virginia won northern virginia's incentive package to amazon was a billion dollars detroit's was four billion They walked away from $3 billion because they wanted talent mattered more to them than cash.
0: Right. And we've got to make sure that we're growing the talent, but we also take responsibility for guiding our kids into those knowledge job sectors. Exactly, Lou, it is a hair on fire moment, and your report was fortunately too prescient 20 years ago. And all of it has come true. Uh, We appreciate your time, and uh, let's all work on this together. Keep us updated, won't you?
10: Sure. Thanks very much.
0: All right, Luke Glazer, president and co-founder of Michigan Future, Inc. You can find that report. It's called Path to Prosperity, and you can find it a number of places. When we come back, talking about talent leaving the state of Michigan, well, there's one talented guy we got to stay, and it could be a game-changer for our Lions. That's next with Steve Courtney on JR Morning. You know, if you're considering an electric vehicle, Consumers Energy has your back there. With their enhanced Power My Drive program, you can get so much valuable information. You can talk to an EV specialist, learn more about driving electric, the available rebates, the incentives, how you cover the cost of installing a home charger, and also finding the best electric rate for that overnight charging that will be happening Their website can really help get you started no matter where you are in your electric vehicle journey. And you can assess the real costs out there to making that leap. Visit consumersenergy.com slash EV to learn more.
1: For the second consecutive season, Detroit Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson has opted to remain with the Lions, declining opportunities elsewhere in the NFL coaching landscape. And joining us to give his perspective on what this means for the Honolulu Blue and Silver is WJR's senior sports analyst,
11: (laughs) Steve Courtney.
1: Steve Marino, good morning.
11: Good morning, Lloyd and Jamie and Guy. Hello again, everyone. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, A little bit late. Uh but yeah, it's worked out once again. You know, you go back to uh when the NFL's postseason was just getting underway back in the good old days. Uh it, it seemed as though uh it was a foregone conclusion that Ben Johnson, Lions offensive coordinator, would become the guy with the Washington Commanders. Well, Uh, Once again, we have evidence that there are no such thing as locks. Uh, Ben Johnson is going to remain with the Honolulu Blue and Silver. Uh, 37 years of age, he has been the Lions offensive coordinator, yes, over the last two seasons. Now, keep in mind, in this coaching cycle, uh, Ben Johnson also interviewed for the head coaching vacancies with the Atlanta Falcons, the Carolina Panthers, and the Los Angeles Chargers. Uh, He has been with the Lions since 2019 when he was an offensive quality control coach. Now, obviously, via social media, we have heard from so many of the uh, Lions offensive players that are absolutely giddy with excitement. And, you know, add to that, of course, uh, Lions head coach Dan Campbell. Uh, There's probably a part of Dan that was almost certain that he would have to come up with a new O.C., uh that is not the case as you pointed out Lloyd for the second consecutive season now here's the deal and I'm just thinking out loud and I know that's rather dangerous uh Ben Johnson now is only 37 years of age you could easily make the argument that uh at some point during the remainder of his coaching career he will be a head coach in the NFL but uh he has opted to remain uh with this Lions program for two straight years uh next year And I'm just, again, thinking out loud when the NFL is going through the hiring process for head coaches. Is this going to take away from their thought process of pursuing Ben Johnson, knowing that there's a chance anyway that he will opt to stay with the Lions, providing, and it's hypothetical, that the Lions continue on their road to success? Interesting to think about. But in the meantime, we celebrate the fact uh, that uh, cohesion is in place, and uh, this is very exciting.
2: Very exciting. I mean, top five in the league in the regular season, total yards, rushing, passing, red zone. So having him come back, it seems like they could run it back to the NFC championship and maybe more.
11: Well, there's such a comfort factor uh, with he and Lions quarterback Jared Goff, Jamie. I mean, uh, these guys are certainly, you know, on the same page. And again, Brad Holmes, Lions GM, uh, he's got decisions to make as to the future contract of Jared Goff. But, you know, maybe something like this will help everything fall into place and it's interesting the way this thing all came down according to reports the powers that be with the commanders were on their way to detroit when they received word from ben johnson that he hey i appreciate it uh but i'm going to stay where i'm at meanwhile uh the commanders continued the truck to detroit uh to uh, sit down with defensive coordinator aaron glenn and i'll point out uh per our friend adam schefter at espn lions passing game coordinator Tanner Engstrand is going to interview for the Buccaneers offensive coordinator vacancy. So further evidence there, my friends, that uh, when you have success, there are certainly other teams in the NFL that would like to get a piece of that.
0: But the grass was greener in terms of having a head coaching uh, salary, right? But not necessarily in terms of the talent you were going to be able to work with with the commanders and the Seahawks. And that's the thing that we really can't overlook here is what it says about what he has
11: here in Detroit. I
2: don't think it was about money, Steve. I think it was about a Lombardi trophy, and they are way closer here than starting all over somewhere else. Mm-hmm.
11: Yeah, you know, you take a look at uh, what the commanders uh, have going on. They've they basically traded away all their top-shelf defensive talent. They do have the second overall pick in the upcoming NFL draft here in Detroit, uh, and I'm sure uh, the franchise quarterback is on their wish list. Um, But, you know, as Ben Johnson said, he discussed it with his wife. Uh, They really like it here um, as a family. Uh, They love the greater Detroit area. Uh, He enjoys what uh, the Lions have built here, knowing fully well, as Dan Campbell stated, that the uh, trek to the NFC Championship next year is going to be a lot more difficult because uh, you've got a target on your back. All right. That being said, uh, it was not about the money because he comes back to Detroit uh, without redoing his contract. They certainly had the option to do that. Um, But uh, he just likes the path that they're on and uh, made a family decision. You certainly uh, applaud that.
1: So, Steve, with Ben Johnson staying, could this also kind of rub off on the others who are maybe looking at other uh, jobs but deciding, okay, Ben's going to stay, so maybe we want to stay too and try to do this one more time?
11: You know, sometimes that happens, Lloyd um but uh, first things first uh, you know brad holmes uh, who is drafted exquisitely and i don't throw that word around all that often um you know he's got decisions to make the lions do have a lengthy list of free agents so it's only natural at the end of any nfl season whether it be successful or not that there is going to be addition there's going to be subtraction to the roster uh in the meantime a uh, lot of celebrating going on that Ben Johnson, as there was last year, Yeah, uh, this one perhaps a bit more of a surprise. Mm-hmm. Because, again, according to reports, it seemed as though that uh, Ben Johnson was about as automatic as it could get to take over the uh, commanders. Um, but now it's just full steam ahead. And this is absolutely huge.
0: There will be a lot of uh, anguished reading of body language and parsing of words. Come two thirty today, when uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell sits down, uh, there's not expected to be any interest rate increases. Certainly, nothing like that. But there, everybody's going to be looking for clues from him as to when we will see what's going to happen down the lines. Mm-hmm. We know that there's going to be a retrenchment here. We have seen significant drops. In inflation there are still some problems uh, core problems around there but for the most part the news has all been trending in the right direction the question becomes is when do you give consumers relief from what for many of them have been historically high interest rates so we'll be watching that uh, as the Fed meets uh, they're going to come out with uh, their forecast at 2 o'clock and again uh, Powell will meet the markets and the uh, media at 2.30 p.m. So in the meantime, kind of a wait and see on the markets. The Dow is trending a bit up. Everybody's trending a bit down as as everybody just kinds of waits and sees. Meantime, an important report coming out about two hours ago. So still uh, breaking news here. Metro Detroit home values rose 8.2% in November compared to the same period last year. Uh, Nationally, it was just 5.4%. So the Metro Detroit home market continues to outpace the nation in every metric you can imagine. Uh, that's great news if you're sitting in your home and maybe thinking about selling it
2: if right. you're a Let's first get some inventory now.
0: exactly <laughs> right. and part of it is because there are just so few homes and hasn't been a heck of a lot of building going on um, all of that is going to take time and uh, Jeanette Schneider our good friend saying yeah here in Metro Detroit still a lot of friction between a lack of inventory and a high demand from buyers and the cost of getting in that home just keeps rising Uh, the Jennifer Crumbly trial continuing today troubling testimony
1: yeah you know during the trial yesterday of uh, Jennifer Crumbly uh, her former boss Andrew Smith provided some crucial insights into their interactions on the day of the uh, tragic incident Smith who supervised Crumbly at a real estate firm recounted their phone calls and in-person conversations he said um crumbly texted him about meeting with her son's counselor attaching that disturbing image of the violent drawings from her son's math worksheet later that morning they crossed paths in the office where crumbly expressed concerns about her son's well-being as events unfolded smith heard commotion and witnessed crumbly rushing out reporting an active shooter at her son's school he offered support as she left throughout the day crumbly messaged smith about missing guns prompting him to advise her to contact the authorities during this tense call while she was en route to the school. He said he heard sirens in the background. Meanwhile, Nicholas Ejack, the former dean of students at Oxford High School, testified about concerns regarding the school shooter's mental health. Ejack recounted interactions with the shooter and his parents. He said he met with James and Jennifer on the morning of the shooting and expressed that he was surprised the teen was not removed from school and also why his backpack was never searched. Now, we know the gun used in the shooting was in that backpack. And when the defense asked Ejack about the shooter's response to him holding his backpack, he testified he didn't appear to even care that he was holding the backpack. He doesn't have to. (laughs) Right. He doesn't have to. You saw disturbing images
0: on a piece of artwork. You're supposedly you're trained. a trained professional. Yes. You said yourself you were worried about self-harm, and you never bothered to ask the question, uh, is there a gun in the home? That's right. Is there a means of self-harm there? You either didn't care, or you thought it would raise a host of other issues. Didn't even tell your principal. No. Um, this man's not on trial, but there will be civil lawsuits going down the road where and he's they'll going to be, 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 be... this they'll be they'll be asking in the meantime. Yes. You know that had to help the defense yesterday because the defense can say, "Hey, look, here's a trained professional. Mm-hmm. He didn't see any problem, so why would the parents think that, that this was a likely right. outcome?"
2: But who had all mo- all of the knowledge that they could have? The parents. Parents. They Not knew about this the gun. guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And you don't assume that a kid has a gun in his backpack, yeah. but the parents knew they bought a form days before.
0: Well, and he yeah. said, you know, if I had known about the existence of the gun, that would have changed the scenario. Well, if, well of course it was. But you know that gun gun ownership is quite common,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and it's certainly quite common in that district. It would have been, a, 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 any reasonable human well, being would have thought that that was a logical question to ask if you're concerned about the... The uh, the potential for self harm. Well,
1: to me, if you if if you are shown this uh, picture that he had of the gun and the and the shooting and and all that on that on this drawing, to me, I'm just saying me that would just make, Does he have access to a gun? He drew also, gun, you know,
2: more uh, fodder for the parents. You see the pictures of the house. There oh. were bullets in a um, what's it called? Where you put it on the wall and you shoot at it? Right, a target. target a target. target yeah. So guns were a part of his psyche, and he was practicing, and he was excited about Pilot this Pellet guns gun. and BB guns Then everywhere. you see this yeah. picture of him in blood. Like, why don't the parents put two and two together?
0: Yeah. Well, and then there's the other thing that was just kind of extraordinary. You know, all of us, if we were in that situation, and I'm sitting in a squad car, my kid's just done this horrible thing, I, I know that I'm going to have to probably get an attorney for him mm-hmm. and for myself. She doesn't call a sister a sibling. She doesn't... I, she. She calls her boss, her, her horse. She talked to her horse trainer and her boss. Yeah. So you wonder Where's, where was the friend group? Where, right. where was the family, family support for this family? It sounds like they were pretty isolated.
2: It seems if you're texting your boss about the gun and the bullets I mean, and saying
0: you need to get me an attorney, mm-hmm.
2: right?
1: Um, put him in a, a very awkward so position. She's more worried and, about her job too. Some of the things that she texts.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't judge me for what my son has done. I need this job. Right. Which is is probably true and a concern, but would that be your first concern exactly. in that moment?
5: Right. No. Um,
0: just so many uh, details coming out that, uh, that, that were disturbing and more to come perhaps from Jennifer Crumbley's lips, uh, if not today, very soon uh, in this trial. This, this Taylor Swift story about this far-right conspiracy has now gone from being just the crazies talking about it to conservative talking heads almost giving it oxygen yeah and, and well you know it's wild speculation but and and giving it A lot more um, legitimacy than it certainly deserves.
2: Why are we at this point? Like, she is a pop star. People are excited she's at these games. Little girls are watching to see Taylor Mm -hmm. in the stands.
0: She's an outstanding role model.
2: Yeah. You know how much she's on during a broadcast? About 25 seconds. That's it. And Colin Calhoun went off on people (laughs) who are bothered by all of this, saying it says more about you if you're bothered.
5: We celebrate all these goofballs jumping on tables in Buffalo and cheese hats and men and men and Matthew McConaughey and Drake and Jack Nicholson, men and men and men and Eminem and and it's cool and can I get a selfie and I can't believe I saw... And a young, attractive, beautiful, talented woman comes on for 25 seconds and you're bothered.
2: And he says, what does that say about you? Why are you so bothered by this? She's not doing anything. Well, she's the, cheering on her boyfriend.
0: And there's this, this, oh, my God, she could. She might endorse Joe Biden. Well, she might. She's mm-hmm. a free I, citizen. Honestly, Do I think that's it to. because she has a and, lot
2: of sway, yes. and they fear that she's about to endorse Joe Biden, and they're trying to get ahead of it.
0: She has a lot of followers. When she came out and said, hey, you know, you need to engage in our democratic process. Here is the website for vote.org. 35,000 hits. hmm as soon as she posted that. So she does have incredible power. I would hope that she would exercise that responsibly. I don't know that she's going to make a lot of young voters fall in love with Joe Biden, quite frankly. Um, certainly, Nora Jim Clyburn said, in South Carolina yeah. hasn't had very much success. Uh, Nor has she said that.
2: that's her. She's just yeah. going to a football game, guys.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, and let's face it, the, the same folks that were behind Pizzagate are the ones that are kind of generating this. And it, it, is potentially dangerous because they yeah. are feeding a craziness um, on some of these darker websites. For a woman who's already been the victim of home invasion, stalkers stuff, yeah. Google Taylor Swift home invasion, and you can see every creep in the world that they've arrested over the past several years. And she was just the victim
2: of AI explicit photos she had nothing to do with. She's been through a lot. She is not doing anything but going to a football game. Why are you bothered?
0: And also being an outstanding role model for our young women in terms of hard work, talent, She was unjustly treated by management. She handled those matters Mm
3: -hmm.
0: quite, and she's a phenomenal businesswoman. Yeah. Um. She's not like Kim Kardashian. She's not dropping sex tapes to get famous. (laughs) No. Right. Um. You know, let's support someone who has. uh, And it's
2: twenty-five seconds of your life. Yeah, and what's so wow terrible about that?
1: You're not missing a lot of the game. No. Uh, Or any of it, really. No, and,
0: uh, yeah, you know, know, and it also gives dads and and young girls, we can talk about about football, right? Yeah, exactly. What's that cool?
2: I say kudos to Colin Calhurst. He took a great take, in my opinion.
0: thank you, Colin, and he he knows how to give it, doesn't he? Uh, When we come back, going to be talking about the uh, Detroit Free Press taking an unusual turn here when it comes to their comment section have you guys been on a comment section in the past oh yeah you
2: talk about crazy weeks? yes
0: well yeah it but i mean personal there's not a lot of incentive there to comment or make a reasonable comment because that's not a pr- really encouraged or appreciated we'll talk about uh, the the extraordinary step the free press is taking next on gr marking and morning at 8 19.
2: So in 2021, the Free Press had an opinion piece, why we're leaving comments on Freep.com. And they uh, acknowledged that they can become filled with spam and vitriol, but they were keeping them at that time. But things have changed. Now the Detroit Free Press says no comment. The newspaper says it will be removing the ability for readers to leave comments on its website following stories, WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne now
12: joins us with details. So it's an about-face, Marie. It sure is, Jamie. The Free Press says it'll remove its comments section from the website starting February 1st. The paper's editor, Nicole Avery Nichols, saying in a statement that while the paper believes in the importance of engagement with listeners, it's making the hard choice to move away from that space because of the time investment needed to monitor the comments to produce a safe and constructive dialogue. The statement went on to say that the comments section can be a benefit, but it can also quickly devolve when they are not managed. The paper tried engaging its reporters in this back and forth, but that took a lot of time away from their core duties, which of course is reporting the news. The free press not alone in shutting down the comments section, Reuters, Chicago Sun Times, Popular Science, the Philadelphia Inquirer among many others that have all nixed public comment sections. One study found that very small percentage of readers actually leave comments, very small, less than 1%. And other research in the University of Florida showed that people who read negative comments and then read the story, they often end up viewing the material in a negative light themselves. So the takeaway on that is that a few people could have a really big impact on how a story is viewed by a large group of readers. So Nichols said readers can still engage with reporters and uh, and the paper on social media platforms and, of course, the old-fashioned way uh, with a letter to the editor And on that point, guys, uh, Nancy Kaffer, the editorial page writer for the Free Press, writes on social media that online comments are the razor V1 hip hugger flare pants of communicating with your newspaper. (laughs) She says letters to the editor. Time-honored, road-tested, a classic for a reason. Yeah. And she invites listeners to get to uh, just write a letter to the editor. You can do it online, by the way. You don't have to use it by snail mail.
1: So, Marie, you know, a lot of the folks who comment uh, are usually a lot of times the same people who, yeah. <laughs> who comment all the time. And then depending on what your uh, take is on a particular story, it, it gets personal. And it's either they, they start using politics to either a liberal or you're a MAGA or, you know, and then it goes kind of down the drain after that.
12: Immediately, it seems, you know, I like looking at the comments section for a couple of different reasons. First of all, it kind of gives you a sense of how people feel about a certain story. You know, if, if you really, if people quote-unquote behave themselves on the comment section. You can get a real idea of how the public feels about certain stories. Um, So it's kind of sad that it's devolved into this, that we can't have it anymore, but it gets personal so quickly. People are labeled, and it it just gets ugly too fast. Instead of saying, well, Bob, I I don't agree with that, but here's how I feel about Mm -hmm. it. It's not like that at all.
0: The sad thing is if there was ever a time where we needed meaningful thoughtful dialogue on the issues of the day it's now and yet all of the reasonable thoughtful people have been chased away from these comment sections by those that behave like eight-year-olds in a sandbox (laughs) yeah and well you're a mega idiot well you're a libtard or you know whatever pejorative they come up with it's 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 really is a sad statement about where we are as a society that we've let the one percent of one percent on those comment sections and our dialogue
12: yeah and and the thing is that um, y- y- the the healthy dialogue is extremely important of course but also, I think people hide behind the fact that they're unidentifiable online. They hide behind the keyboard. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's because of that. Um, I've often told the story that on social media, I belong to some innocuous groups like a knitting group, a cake-making group, a reading group. And the, all of those have had to post warnings from the administrators saying, you can't be political on this site. Just talk about knitting don't don't people and isn't that crazy that people want to go right. on a knitting uh, group or, or a cake there's one that i found it's a pound cake uh, group where you know you share recipes and so on they had to write that from now on everything has to be it has to go through the administrator they just won't allow posts anymore because of this because people are not nice what is the pound cake group name <laughs> Uh, it, it is it, it is the pound cake group. That's exactly oh, okay. what they wow. called. Yep. Okay. All right. Yep. So no, <laughs> but there's listen. There's a group for anybody on online. That is. True. I just I, these are just things that I find interesting. And by you know, there's a group for people who make their own um, vanilla extract. I mean, there's all kinds of groups online that are fun and interesting. If you have a hobby, but it's sad that these l- groups have to put these kinds of warnings on there. Uh, websites that you can't be. Who will be political?
0: You can still comment here on Newstalk 760 (laughs) WJR 1-800-859-0957. We're not doing away with our comment (laughs) section, uh, either on Facebook or
1: uh, WJR.com or, of course, on our air. Censorship. Are are people going to start hollering, oh, you're censoring me because you don't want to hear my side, so it's censorship.
12: Well, they're going to say you could
2: still write a letter to the editor.
12: Yeah. 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 And and you can engage like Nancy Kaffer has a, um, her own uh, Facebook uh, account and so on. She she's elsewhere on social media as well. So you can just comment on her stories there. So it, it, that's OK. It's yeah. just that this particular thing has gotten uh, on the newspaper. Side, just and gotten, it, and, it, yeah, takes and it takes up too much time. It takes up
1: takes up so much time to <laughs> try to make it. But
0: it it used to be a great tool because, I mean, I would use it when I was at four on ClickOn because you could go on there. If someone took issue with your story, you could say, well, here's why we did the story the way we did, and here's who we talked to, and here's the background on that. Because sometimes you don't have time in a 90-second story to fill in all those blanks and Mm -hmm. give that kind of context. Mm you know. And it gave you a chance, and it also made them feel like you were responsive to their complaints, which is important in this world where we're kind of viewed as media people like we're in an ivory tower. Right.
2: Well, and back to their opinion piece in 2021, they said, Why are we keeping them on? Because people bring different life experiences. Mm -hmm. To right. the story that uh-huh. the writer didn't have, and then that brings dialogue to it, but it just evolved into this ugly, ugly place. And just like Marie, you know, I have different groups on Facebook that have nothing to do with anything, and they can get nasty. And that's where
12: we are as a society. And yeah.
0: you want to get nasty with, with needle, needing, uh, knitting with needles or pound
3: cake?
12: What did yeah. pound cake ever do to you? <laughs>
3: yeah,
12: <laughs> just it's it's just not civil. We are, and and again, I just think it's online because people can hide behind that keyboard, right. and and that is just. Very sad.
2: Okay, Marie, thank you so much for bringing this to our... Thanks, Jamie. We'll allow thanks, you everybody. to
12: comment in the future. Yes. Oh, great. But only
0: on pound, pound cake and knitting. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> That's all. It's a safe
12: space. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: oh, th- thanks so much. It, it, it is, uh, It you know, it, it does... There are places for civility. Yes. And it just seems it's, it's, it has just, they're getting, they're died. getting lesser
1: and, and lesser places for and it. Even,
0: you know, even in church, we were talking to Tim Alberta before the holiday. Yeah. Who is, mm-hmm. you know, a political commentator for The Atlantic, uh, saying when his, he's at his dad's funeral and people are coming up to him and complaining about something he wrote in the Atlantic. About Trump. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's just no sense of, hey, here's the, there's, there are certain boundaries here. Yeah. That, that we should be we used exercising. To have them. We used to have them. Yeah. And, uh, certainly, and the, the venom that is involved is, is really crazy. One of the things that so many people are upset about, uh, the loss of our three soldiers in J- Jordan from this terrible drone attack mm-hmm. that we saw. We're going to be connecting with General Jack Keene coming up. Sadly, he predicted this just a couple of weeks ago. He said, look, the Biden administration is so paralyzed over their fear of escalating this fight with Iran that if they don't do something, the fight with Iran will escalate itself and our people will pay the price. His words have never been truer and never been more on point. The question is now, what should the Biden administration, what should his military advisors be telling him now? We'll check in with General Keene next on JR Morning at 8.35. Iranian-backed militias took the lives of three brave American soldiers in an attack in Jordan. Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Kennedy Sanders, and Specialist Brianna Moffat all lost their lives in a drone attack that was completely foreseeable. Uh, That these uh, Iranian-backed militias had not been deterred by any form of retaliation that the Biden administration had been offering up. So where does that leave us now? How do we make it stop? Who better to talk about than the man that more or less predicted this outcome? Sadly, uh, two to three weeks ago, retired four-star General Jack Keane, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, good morning.
13: Yeah, good morning. Delighted to be
0: here. I hate it when you're right, General, but you said that the the Biden administration was so paralyzed by their fear of escalating this war with Iran and its proxies that it failed to effectively retaliate. So if you were giving advice in the Oval Office today, what what would you tell the president would be a meaningful response that could help end this?
3: Yeah,
13: I, I would tell him that what we have to focus on is not the fear of Iranian provocation, uh, not the fear of Iranian escalation. We have to focus on just what you said. What will it take to stop it? I, I would tell him uh, that we meet, really need to reset our strategy when it comes to Iran. And three parts to that: one, diplomatically, stop the appeasement and negotiations to that we've done with the Iranians over the nuclear deal. Let's gather the international community to further isolate Iran given this horrific behavior that we've watched for the last several months. Number two, return to the maximum economic sanctions that the Trump administration was administering. Make sure all the loopholes are covered and engage China directly to have them stop buying Ukrainian oil, and if they don't, we should sanction them as well. And then the third thing is a is militarily look at stopping as much as we possibly can the capabilities that the Iranian-backed militias have uh, in Iraq and Syria, who've been conducting the attacks against our U.S. bases. Now I think somewhere around 165. 166 uh, since October, but also recognize that Iran is driving all of this. And as a result of that, then you have to deal with them. And I would focus a military action against the IRGC for our audience to understand that is the organization inside Iran that arms, uh, funds, and trains. These militias, that's the Hezbollah, the Houthis, and the Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and, and Syria, and and also as well uh, Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They are all their proxies. The IRG supervises them. So we should deal with the IRGC. They have coastal bases with uh, naval ships. Uh, they have coastal... Uh, other military bases as well, and and also we should focus on their leaders. Uh, which ones we attack, certainly that that's up to CENTCOM to present. But I would focus on that because it it it, it doesn't attack something commercially, which would involve civilian casualties, and recognize that the civilian population. In Iran is very much opposed to the regime and the mullahs. Mm-hmm. And even when the Trump administration had profound impact on them economically, they were not blaming the United States for their economic situation. They were blaming the mullahs because they were conducting, and they would hold up signs, foreign wars. And this is the proxies conducting activity throughout the, the Middle East region. So that, that would be my my recommendation and, and try to do it in a sustained way, not, not try to do it you know, in, in terms of military action in one night, and, and make certain that it's comprehensive enough really to get their message. Iran will reattack and there's no doubt about that, much as they did after we took down Qasem Soleimani, but it's unlikely that they would continue, and why is that? because they really don't want to expand the war and, and have a confrontation with the United States. Uh, and, and the principal reason is they want to preserve their regime, and they know full well a war with the United States would mean the end of their regime. And, and that is something that the Biden administration cannot get in their head, because they, they clearly focus on the fear of escalation, as opposed to focusing on what it takes to stop the Iranians and recognize that the 43-year history in dealing with Iranians is they don't want a direct confrontation with the United States. That is why they have the proxies, and they don't care if, if Houthi fights to the very last man or the very last rocket uh, in taking on the United States and Israel. That's the reality of it, and the Biden administration. Uh, Hopefully, it moves in that direction. I'm not optimistic that they will. Well,
1: General, you know, I know the U.S. is not looking to escalate, but the attack over the weekend was escalatory. You know, let's make no mistake about it. So, you know, as you said, do we do we hit the proxies, but do we cut off the head of the snake and 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 do something with Iran? And if it, ex, you know, if it expands, it, it it does. But we have to protect our our people. Oh yeah, well, that's
13: absolutely. Well, that's what I just said. Of course, we do. to deal with Iran uh, itself. And listen, let's recognize the fact the president keeps using the term, well, I don't want to expand the war. Well, the Iranians have expanded the war. Hezbollah has attacked Israel on average six times every single day, and it's 80,000 Israelis that are displaced from northern Israel as a result of those continuous attacks. The Houthis have disrupted the flow of shipping through the Suez Canal in excess of 50%, expect, uh, impacting the global supply chain. That is an expansion of the war. And the staggering amount of attacks by Iranian backed Iraqi and Syrian militia now, I think 165, 166 attacks since October 80 attacks. from the the time the administration began in January of 2021 up to October, all of that has been an expansion of of the war and recognize it for what it is.
2: General, do you think there's this perception that the administration isn't protecting U.S. troops? Could fewer Americans enlist in the military going forward?
13: No, um, I think... Certainly, there's retention and recruiting problems uh, in, uh, because, you know, we've done surveys. I'm on a congressional commission that's looking at the national defense strategy, and and the the propensity for people to want to join the military and see it as something that would add value to their life has, has gone down. And sadly, many of them believe that if you do join the military— yeah. um, you're going to be damaged as a result of traumatic brain injuries or catastrophic loss, uh, uh, catastrophic injuries like we've seen in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And those are, are realities out there that we, that we have to deal with. Right. I, I think, I mean, I, I do appreciate your comment because I've said this publicly uh, before our, our, it's heartbreaking to see our troops killed because it, I mean, the fact we seem to just be waiting for it to happen and then we're going to take some some kind of dramatic action when we should have taken the action to prevent that from that from happening, not wait until it happens. And and that, I think, is irresponsible behavior on the part of the administration.
0: General Keene, always appreciate your insights, Uh, sir. Thank you for being with us.
13: Yeah. Delighted talking to you and as well as your audience. Thank you very right. much.
0: Fox News Senior Strategic Analyst General Jack Keane. I got to tell you, I had dinner with a, of some close friends on uh, Monday night. and Their son is in one of our military mm-hmm. academies. He's going to be deployed as a Marine upon graduation. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, you know, if we knew now, if we'd known then what we know now, we might have rethought this because... What do we do if the president won't back up our son if he is in a zone like that that becomes a target and he won't retaliate and back up his troops? And the
2: Lloyd has family, yeah, and Mom, you got
0: you know mm-hmm. same same thing, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, what do we do if you won't back up our loved ones? And the Wall Street Journal, with a I thought a very on point uh, editorial about this today, that this the idea of deterrence. Can influence decisions people make. Right. The human cost forward.
2: of failed deterrence mm-hmm. yeah. is the title. Yeah.
0: And that's you may want to check that out at wsj.com. Uh when we come back, we know the Biden administration has spoken a lot about helping students eliminate debt and making getting to college easier. Well, the U.S. Department of Education with a major fail that is making getting to college even tougher. We'll tell you about it next at 849 on News Talk 760. fountain blue las vegas the newest luxury resort and casino on the strip and we'd love to send you there for the big game weekend how do we do that well you get a trip for two to vegas including airfare two nights stay at fountain blue 150 dollars credit to spend at one of the 36 restaurants and bars uh, that will go a long way and two tickets to the fountain blue las vegas big game viewing party so you got this great fun viewing party at the blow live theater And a weekend in Vegas that will be unlike any other, this brand spanking new luxury resort. But you need the national keyword to win. And this hour, it is DICE, D-I-C-E, DICE. Text that to 95819, DICE to 95819, and you will be registered to win. And uh, for full details and official contest rules, visit WJR.com. We know that there has been uh, a lot of talk about loan forgiveness, and the Biden administration claims that it is deeply involved with trying to make college easier and more affordable for Americans. And yet they have bollocksed up the simplest part. <laughs> we know about the FAFSA application, right? That's, mm-hmm. the, uh, that's the free application for federal student aid. It you usually file it in late fall or early winter with your student. Uh, you get the application, you turn it in, and you find out if you're eligible for federal student aid. The problem is, is in the process of making it simpler, they screwed it up. The U.S. Department of Education screwed up the application. They are now, you know, they, they told folks, well, you're going to have to wait to file it until January. Well, so they waited. Yesterday they announced, well, we won't be accepting it until March. Wow. Six months later than they normally would, so you've got... millions of students and their parents in limbo right now because the calculations table for the new FAFSA application the simplified easier application not so simple not so simple when they don't give you the proper calculating tables so instead you're gonna have to wait for the fix on that for early March and and universities are saying we we need this information this is a data collection time when we can tell students what their affordability is going to be and whether or not we can accept them and what we can offer them absolutely could not come at a worse time this this announcement yesterday and this is the I mean it is the very day that the, the universities were expecting to start accepting this stuff they're told no you're going to have to wait until early March and there's no guarantee that it's going to be ready then
1: so it's unacceptable really it's,
0: it's
2: just- a. a, a- tense time too when you're trying to figure it out is. where you can go what can you afford where you know
0: it's an anxiety inducing process anyway because the FAFSA application wasn't easy you no. have to disclose a ton of stuff on it uh, and very personal mm-hmm. financial uh, stuff And uh, Justin Drager is the president of the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators, the people that kind of help navigate this process. And they say on the very day that schools were expecting FAFSA applicant information, they were instead notified by the U.S. Department of Education that they shouldn't expect to receive that data until March at the earliest. It threatens to harm the very students and families that federal student aid is intended to help the gang that can't seem to shoot straight on a lot of stuff has now let parents and their kids down at at a critical time in their lives when a lot of them are, (laughs) you know, trying to reorient after the pandemic and and lay out their future. Um, And we're all here in the state of Michigan trying to encourage more kids to go to four-year institutions. And affordability is one of the key factors that they they must navigate. And they are in... um, really really as i said couldn't come at a worse time paul is in troy and paul you're saying that this is not true you dispute what NBC's reporting no 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 oh, okay. uh
14: just a quick uh quick clarification so um i'm the founding partner of bridgewise college planning we help families with fafsa's we've already filled in fafsa's for helping a number of families this year so it's not that they can't fill it in. It's that the forms won't be submitted over to the schools until March.
0: Right. So it's, But it still delays the process and the answer, right?
14: Yeah. So the, the financial aid award offers, the issue that we're going to run into is the schools don't have a connection to the FAFSA yet. And that's going to be the, the biggest issue is um, there's, you know, some 6,000 schools across the country that don't have access to the data they need to make offers of financial aid to these individual families so if they're not going to make that connection until March they're going to have issues getting decision day done by April 1st because what if there was an error what if there's a a negotiation process that we do on behalf of families that needs to happen to make sure the financial aid is correct and and the families get every dollar they deserve Mm -hmm. there needs to be time to work between the different universities and give these students and families uh, enough time to make a good decision so right there's no time for
0: appeal here is there
14: Absolutely not. And that's going to be one of the big issues. So I suspect, and we'll see what the individual universities end up doing, but they're going to do something similar, I would guess, to what they did in the first year of COVID. When COVID first hit, they extended those um, acceptance deadlines. Instead of a decision day being on April 1st, they delayed it a number of months at many universities. So we don't think all universities will do that. Some are a little stuffy and they want to stick to their own process. Um, but I think a number of universities might end up doing that this year.
2: But you wanted to call in and tell everyone you could still fill it out right now.
14: Absolutely.
0: Fill it out, fill move the, forward with up. it. Yeah. The problem is the university of your choice may not be able to respond. And, and, and they acknowledge here, the department says, yeah, you can't make any corrections to your forms and you wouldn't be able to do so until after the first half of March.
14: Yeah, and we've had families we've ran into that where um, they they just found our company and we found errors on what they filled in, and there's really nothing we can do about it, but um, until they, they send it over to the universities.
0: Right. 3.1 million FAFSA forms have been successfully submitted. The problem is they can't be successfully analyzed or uh, processed. Process.
14: Yeah, so they made a major error on how they calculate inflation um, in the, the formulas, and that's really what, what the issue is here, and they – they have to change the whole formula of how everything is being calculated. So that's going to affect who gets the Pellgram. The good news is more people are going to get more Pellgram. More people are going to get additional financial aid from the universities because they made this change. But it's ridiculous. The, the, the law was passed in December of 2020. It's not like they didn't have enough time to work on that. Well, and the
0: irony is this was supposed to make things simpler. And right. instead it's made it, it, it much more difficult.
14: Well, with dual factor authentication, everything you have to do to get an FSA ID um, they everything about the process they've made more difficult, other than there's a few less questions on the phone. Right. But there's still over 100 lines you have to fill in.
0: Paul, what's the name of your company again?
14: Uh, Bridgewise College Planning. We're in Troy, Michigan. Um, we do have some upcoming virtual workshops. If you go to our website um, or search Google for Bridgewise College Planning, um, we love to help local families.
0: Boy, it sounds Thank like you. a service that huh. a lot of folks could lean on. Thanks for uh, calling in. this news, And, yeah, thanks for h- helping to clarify this. We appreciate it. Yep, love to help. All right. Uh, That's what we try to do here every day from 6 to 9. We'll see you tomorrow. All talk is next.